Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. It's Friday! People in California can get ammunition shipped to them without a background check, thanks to Judge Benitez. And my affiliate partner, Palmetto State Armory, has made it a priority to make sure that they can get that. Let's fucking go! Um, in honor of the news, I've provided a link in the show description to all ammunition that is available. You should go ahead and stock up while you can because Bonta is itching like a dog with fleas to stay this ruling. Uh, The abolishment of the ATF cannot come soon enough. A watchdog group is demanding documents from the Biden administration after whistleblowers alleged that a regulation is under development that would effectively ban private gun sales. The group in power oversight said that two sources have claimed that the Bureau ATF is preparing to propose a rule requiring background checks for most or all gun sales. Biden has campaigned for stricter gun laws and in August proposed a regulation to clarify that people who repetitively sell guns must register as federally licensed gun dealers and are subject to background checks. The revised rule purportedly began being crafted by the ATF would be even broader. Empower Oversight President Tristan Levitt said in a series of posts on X, Empower Oversight has learned through whistleblowers within ATF that at the direction of the White House, ATF has drafted a 1,300-page document to justify a rule effectively banning the private sale of firearms. The whistleblowers say the rule is being drafted by senior policy counsel Eric Epstein, who worked as the Phoenix Field Office's division counsel during Operation Wide Receiver, which was a precursor of Operation Fast and Furious, you know, where the ATF sold guns to illegal aliens for them to then move forward and murder a Border Patrol agent with it. Levitt added, such a sweeping rule with the effect of banning private sales would clearly violate the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which declares that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Empower Oversight sent a Freedom of Information Act request Wednesday to the Justice Department and ATF seeking additional information, including communications with the White House and any Epstein emails involving the alleged plan. Federally licensed gun dealers must conduct background checks by entering gun buyer information into the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which is also called NICS. Although the precise wording of the pending proposal was not released, the whistleblower concern stems from the fact that some sellers may be unable to easily access NICS or unaware of the need to do so, putting themselves in legal jeopardy. The ATF already has interpreted 2022 bipartisan gun law enacted after a mass shooting at a Texas elementary school as expanding who must register as a federally li- federally licensed dealer 
to include people who repetitively sell guns to predominantly earn a profit. Once again, I will take this moment to reiterate how crucial the SCOTUS overturning Chevron deference is. Interpretation does not mean accuracy. Previously, the registration only applied to sellers who had the principal objective of livelihood and profit. It's unclear what carve-outs, such as for family gun transfers, may be included in the alleged pending ATF regulation, which would have to undergo a public notice and comment period. It is also unclear what would become of the current proposed regulation that would ratify the ATF's interpretation of the bipartisan reform law. The public comment period for that rule ended December 8th, with more than 370,000 contributions. ATF's spokeswoman Christina Matropaska did not directly engage with the whistleblower allegations, but told the Post that the Bureau is reviewing and analyzing every single one bullshit of the comments on the prior proposal. Because the proposed rule is still working its way through the process, we cannot comment further, she said. A bold new election year proposal could serve to energize advocates of both gun control and gun rights ahead of November's general election. If adopted, the regulation would almost certainly face litigation. And the Supreme Court, which has expanded gun rights in significant cases over the last two decades, would likely have the final word. In June of last year, Oregon State Senate Democrats staged a walkout for six weeks that held up and blocked hundreds of bills, including some on abortion, transgender procedures, gun control. It was the longest walkout in state history and the second longest in U.S. history. It was prompted by a measure on abortion and gender-affirming care that Republicans believed to be too extreme because it would allow doctors to provide abortions regardless of a patient's age with medical providers not required to notify, notify the parents of the minors. As part of the deal to end the walkout, Democrats agreed to change the language concerning the parental notifications for abortion. Why are you telling us this, Heather? This happened last year. Well, because yesterday, the Oregon Supreme Court stated that those 10 Republicans, the the state senators, cannot run for re-election. The decision upholds the Secretary of State's decision to disqualify the senators from the ballot under a voter-approved measure aimed at stopping such boycotts. Measure 113, passed by voters in 2022, amended the state constitution to bar lawmakers from re-election if they have more than 10 unexcused absences. Five lawmakers sued over the Secretary of State's decision. Secretary of the State's decision. That's kind of a mouthful. Uh, Senators Tim Knopp, Daniel Bonham, Suzanne Weber, Dennis Linthicium, who knows, and Lynn Finley, who are among the 10 GOP senators who racked up more than 10 absences. 
We obviously disagree with the Supreme Court's ruling, said Knopp, the Senate Minority Leader. But more importantly, we are deeply disturbed by the chilling impact this decision will have to crush dissent. Democratic Senate President Rob Wagner welcomed the decision. Today's ruling by the Oregon Supreme Court means that legislators in the public now know how Measure 113 will be applied. And that's good for our state, he said in a statement. Political advocacy groups that backed Measure 113 had similar reactions. Walkouts allow a relatively small number of lawmakers to nullify the will of the majority, and that is to the detriment of our democracy. That was Alejandro Queiroz. Uh, He's the executive director for the Oregon Center for Public Policy. During oral arguments before the Supreme Court in December, attorneys for the senators and the state wrestled over the grammar and syntax of the language that was added to the state constitution after Measure 113 was approved by voters. The amendment says a lawmaker is not allowed to run for the term following the election after the member's current term is completed. The debate was over when the ineligibility kicks in. If a senator's term ends in January of 2025, they would typically seek re-election November of 2024. The election after the member's current term of service is completed would not be until November of 2028. The Republican senators argued so they could run for re-election this year and then hold office for another term before becoming ineligible. The court disagreed, saying that while the language of the amendment was ambiguous, the information provided to to voters on the ballot title and explanatory statement made clear that the intent was to bar truant lawmakers, truant, (laughs) from holding office in the next term. This senator's lawsuit was filed against the Secretary of State, who in August, said this, um, that boycotting senators were disqualified from seeking re-election. She directed her office's elections division to implement an administrative rule based on her stance. All parties in the suit had sought clarity on the issue before March of 2024, filing deadline, deadline for candidates who want to run in this year's election. Knopp, the Senate minority leader, said he didn't plan to appeal the decision or join a separate federal lawsuit filed by three Republicans challenging the disqualification from the ballot. A federal judge in December ruled against the three lawmakers and said they have appealed the decision to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. He conceded that the significant turnover of Republican senators would be challenging, but he said he wasn't concerned. And despite being barred from seeking re-election, he said he wouldn't advise Republicans against link he wouldn't advise Republicans against lengthy walkouts in the future. I think legislators need to stand up on the principles they believe in. If you believe in it enough, 
and make the sacrifice, then you most certainly should, he told reporters. Knopp added that he wasn't sure what he'll do next after the 2024 term ends. Who knows if this is a pause in public service for me and the others, or if it's the end of a road and a new beginning for something else. The 2023 walkout paralyzed the legislature for weeks and only ended after Republicans forced concessions from the Democrats on a sweeping bill related to expanding access to abortion and transgender health care. The U.S. Capitol Police announced yesterday they have declined to press charges following the filming of a butt sex porn video that was recorded inside the Hart Senate office building on the morning of Wednesday, December 13th. After consulting with federal and local prosecutors, as well as doing a comprehensive investigation and review of possible charges, it was determined that despite a likely violation of congressional policy, there's currently no evidence that a crime was committed. Although the hearing room was not open to public at the time, the congressional staffer involved had access to the room. The two people of interest were not cooperative, nor were the elements of any possible crimes met. The congressional staffer, who has since resigned from his job, exercised his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and refuse to talk to us. Our investigators are willing to review new evidence should any come to light. Oh, I bet you'd like more evidence. Room 216 in the Hart Senate office building is a storied hearing room. The dais where the graphic video was filmed, or dais, I'm not sure how you say that word, um, is a place from which U.S. senators have grilled high-profile presidential nominees, including uh, those who would go on to become Supreme Court justices. This is where the 9-11 Commission hearings took place. It's also where James Comey's hearing took place where he testified about his interactions with Trump and the investigation into Russian interference. On the other hand, I'm very, or on the one hand, I'm very, how dare you, Greta Thunberg-ish. And then on the other hand, I'm like, this just showcases the decline of what public office has become. Don't call me a demon. I've seen who your heroes are. Billionaire Peter Thiel has made the news again as he's throwing his financial muscle behind an Olympics on steroids, whose organizer boasts the athletes will dope out in the open and honestly. Thiel, who has made his fortune as an early investor in tech startups like PayPal and Facebook, is is backing the Enhanced Games which will actively encourage athletes to use performance-enhancing drugs. The venture aimed at aiding research into nutritional supplements and biohacks that push the boundaries of human performance is the brainchild of Dr. Aaron D'Souza, who's a lawyer. (laughs) He plans to provide more details on April 17th and promote the controversial concept in Paris during the Summer Olympics, which will begin in July. Teal is among several high-profile venture capitalists who have backed the project, including billionaire Christian Engermeyer, 
of Apiron Investment Group and Balaji Srinivasan, the former chief technology officer of cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase. This feels like the PGA and the Live Golf, except it's the Olympics. <laughs> D'Souza would not reveal how much money was raised, telling the Post it was in the high single-digit millions, a sum that is enough to produce the first games. D'Souza said the enhanced games are negotiating with several host cities that have requisite infrastructure, though he declined to specify which venue will host the inaugural competition, which he expects to get underway by the middle of next year. The competition will feature five events, swimming, gymnastics, weightlifting, track and field, and combat. It will be held once a year at already existing venues. He told the Post that the idea behind the enhanced games is to allow athletes to use whatever substances they wish, out in the open and honestly, unlike the Olympics, where 44% of Olympians admit to using banned substances, while only 1% of them get caught. My body, my choice. Your body, your choice, D'Souza told the Post when he was asked about the philosophy behind allowing athletes to juice. Individuals should be able to make choices about your body, and no one, whether it's a sports federation or the government, should be able to tell them what to do about it. He said the events are open to any athletes, current and former professionals and amateurs that allowing them to enhance their performance with substances will enable researchers to get a better idea of what technologies are out there that can boost longevity and healthy aging. We think that this will create conditions by which we will get a much larger data pool of athletes and individuals who are aspiring to self-improvement through science. He said the data would be very useful to determining compounds and therapies to extending human life. D'Souza predicted the enhanced games would go f- would do for anti-aging what ChatGPT did for AI. The 56-year-old Teal is among several Silicon Valley moguls who have invested millions in funding research aimed at helping people live longer. Teal himself takes human growth hormone to help maintain muscle mass as well as anti-diabetes drug metformin, which has grown popular in the anti-aging community. Teal told media outlets that he adheres to the paleo diet, which is no processed foods in favor of unprocessed fruits, vegetables, and meat, and that he claims to one day have his body cryogenically frozen so that it can be posthumously revived if and when the technology allows for it. So far, 900 athletes have expressed interest in participating in the Enhanced Games, according to D'Souza. He said Enhanced Games' free-for-all philosophy will allow athletes who didn't win the genetic lottery to experiment with supplementation that could boost their performance. Anyone who wants to compete can do so. Enhanced Games will also pay athletes a base salary in addition to prize winnings. The idea is to avoid an Olympic-style competition in which countries and municipalities compete for the right to host the Games by building taxpayer-funded stadiums and venues 
only for those same venues to stand unused after the event is over. Economists at Oxford University conducted an analysis which found that every Olympics since 1960 has gone over budget. D'Souza said that the enhanced games will be entirely funded with private money. The Olympics waste tens of billions of dollars building stadiums and then throwing them away after two weeks. D'Souza said, Dr. Gregory Rodchenkov, the Russian anti-doping whistleblower who exposed the country's state-sponsored doping program, called the idea a danger to health and to sport. Anna Mears, a former Olympic gold medalist who serves as Australia's Olympic chef de mission for the Paris Summer Games, told The Guardian, it's a joke, to be honest. Unfair, unsafe. I just don't think this is the right way to go about sports, she said. Y'all, the billionaires are creating a whole new level of gladiator. I hope like hell that one day I'm going to reach a level of wealth to be able to be so bored with my success and money that I can just invest in stupid shit for the lols. China is preparing its legion of hackers to wreak havoc on critical U.S. infrastructure, FBI. Director Christopher Wray warned lawmakers. Digital infiltrators working for the People's Republic of China are specifically targeting American water treatment plants, the electrical grid, oil and natural gas pipelines, and transportation systems, according to the director, who noted that the Chinese hackers far outnumber the bureau's cyber personnel. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. To quantify that, if we're up against the PRC, they have a bigger hacking program than that of every major nation combined. In fact, if you took every single one of the FBI cyber agents and intelligence analysts and focus them exclusively on the China threat, China's hackers would still outnumber FBI cyber personnel by 50 to 1. Oh, so you mean that while you were sending our young men and women to fight in the desert and bring democracy to people who hated us, China was teaching their young men and women to code and destroy and dismantle the largest superpower in the world without firing a single shot? Yeah, that checks out. Ray described the PRC's hacking efforts as part of the communist country's multi-pronged assault on our national (laughs) and economic security, which he called the, quote, defining threat of our generation. Good. I'm so glad you've been spending so much time on people who protested at the Capitol and going to school board meetings and Catholics and putting them on watch lists. I thought maybe that was the defining threat of our generation, but what do I know? Uh, To highlight how commonplace and pervasive China's hacking efforts are, Ray noted that just earlier in the day, the FBI identified hundreds 
hundreds of routers that had been taken over by the Chinese hacking group known as Volt Typhoon. The Volt Typhoon malware enabled China to hide, among other things, pre-operational reconnaissance and network exploitation against critical infrastructure, like our communications, energy, transportation, water sectors. Ray described the malware attack thwarted by the Bureau and its partners as an attempt by the PRC to find us, to, I, I apologize, to find and prepare to destroy or degrade the civilian critical infrastructure that keeps us safe and prosperous. And to be clear, cyber threats to our critical infrastructure represent real-world threats to our physical safety, he added. In response to Ray's ominous testimony, Rep. Mike Waltz, who's out of Florida, said he has no doubt that the PRC's hacking program was laying the groundwork for the next major conflict. The difference here is that This has crossed the line from collecting on us and using cyber to get inside of our systems to putting malware in that can take out our systems. So we have to start thinking about this differently. Um, He said that cyber attacks against critical U.S. infrastructure should be considered an act of war. There is no difference in sending a missile into a dam or a water treatment facility, then shutting it down through cyber means. It's an attack. It's an act of war. We've got to begin thinking about it that way. Ray insisted that the United States just remain vigilant and actively defend against threats from Beijing. Otherwise, China has shown us it will make us pay, he said. Wait. I just watched Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden roll out the red carpet, literally, for Xi Jinping. We allowed China to buy up a bunch of our farmland. We had an unauthorized and unlicensed Chinese biolab operating in California. Hundreds of our teachers, researchers, and institutions are on the Chinese payroll through the Thousand Talents program. Are you sure that the Patriot Front isn't what we should really be worried about? (laughs) On another front of the greatest foreign policy of any administration of all time forever, the United States has approved a plan to directly target Iran in a response to the attack that killed three soldiers. U.S. officials have characterized the response as a, quote, campaign that could last weeks. And it will include both airstrikes and cyber attacks. It would target both the Iran-backed militias that carried out the attack and Iranian forces that support them in the region. The decision to attack Iranian personnel directly in Iraq and Syria marks a significant escalation in a volatile regional power struggle that pits the United States against Iran and a network of allied militias in the Middle East. U.S. forces in the region have come under frequent attacks by Iran-backed militias opposed to the U.S. presence in the region for years. Those attacks increased dramatically following Israel's invasion of Gaza and Washington's unyielding support for the war. 
U.S. warships and international, international, (laughs) holy shit, I cannot talk today. International merchant vessels have also come under attack from Yemen's Houthi rebels, who are also backed by Iran. Concerns have been growing over the spread of violence across the Middle East, linked to Israel's war in Gaza, which was triggered by an attack from Hamas inside of Israel, around which 1,200 people were killed and another 240 taken hostage. Israel's war with Hamas, which is allied with Iran, has drawn in Iran's allies from across the region, from Yemen's Houthis to Lebanon's Hezbollah. Israel's war has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, according to the Hamas-run Palestinian Health Ministry. The Biden administration has said repeatedly that it hoped to prevent a wider regional escalation as a result of the Israel-Hamas war, but the intervention of the Houthis and the killing of the U.S. soldiers has resulted in a series of military confrontations that resemble a low-level regional war. The U.S. now regularly carries out strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, as well as Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. When questioned by The Independent about whether the U.S. classifies the fighting on multiple fronts as a war, White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said he disagreed. We believe the attack in Jordan was a plan resourced and facilitated by an umbrella group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which contains multiple groups, including Kataib Hezbollah, Mr. Kirby said. Well, let's hope your intel is better than it was for weapons of mass destruction. But I do want to be fair. Joe Biden is in an impossible situation right now. If you do nothing... You project extreme weakness, and it will result in more attacks, and probably larger and more escalated attacks. If you attack Iranian positions, you also risk provoking a country with no remorse, where their children's first words are, Amrika, however you say that, uh, which is death to America. Um, going back to communism in California, they have officially introduced the first in the nation slavery reparations package, including a proposal to restore property taken by race-based cases of eminent domain and a potentially unconstitutional measure to provide state funding for specific groups. The package is an effort to give restitution to Black Americans who have been harmed by centuries of racist policies and practices. California's legislative push is the culmination of years of research and debate, including 111 pages of recommendations issued last year by a task force. The 14 measures introduced by the Legislative Black Caucus touch on education, civil rights, criminal justice, including reviving a years-old effort to restrict solitary confinement that failed to make it out of the state house as recently as last year. That included is any type of financial compensation to descendants of black slaves, a polarizing proposal that has received a cool response from many state Democrats, including Gavin Newsom. While many only associate direct cash payments with reparations, the true meaning of the word 
to repair involves much more. Assemblymember Lori Wilson, who's the chair of the caucus, said in a statement, we need a comprehensive approach to dismantling the legacy of slavery and systemic racism. The package does have a provision that would give some monetary relief. The proposed bill, authored by State Senator Stephen Bradford, who is a Democrat from Los Angeles, deals with property takings. It would restore property taken during race-based uses of eminent domain to its original owners or providers, or provide, I'm sorry, another effective remedy where appropriate, such as restitution or compensation. Black lawmakers are already anticipating an uphill battle. They anticipate spending many hours to educate fellow legislators and convince them to pass the bills. Some of the measures could also run into legal trouble. Democratic Assemblymember Corey Jackson, who represents a district of north of San Diego, is proposing asking voters to change California's constitution to allow the state to fund programs aimed at increasing the life expectancy of, improving educational outcomes for, or limiting the poverty specific groups based on race, color, ethnicity, national origin, or marginalized genders, sexes, or sexual orientations. Holy fuck, it's like the mecca of identity, politics, check this box, check that box, check all the boxes. That plan could face a similar constitutional challenge like the one that ultimately dismantled affirmative action. Other proposals include protections for natural and protective hairstyles in all competitive sports and crimes against humanity on African African slaves on their descendants. The caucus will flesh out the package in the coming weeks. Normally, I don't even give proposals like this a whisper of a breath and validation. However, the fact that this is in California and this is something that could actually pass or actually become a reality, while it's grossly communist, I can see it spreading like wildfire. It should be called out for the trash that it is. And although I'm running a bit long today, I wanted to make sure I got this tidbit in here for you guys. Yesterday opened the tax filing season. The House passed bipartisan tax legislation Wednesday evening that would expand the child tax credit and restore several business tax breaks, a rare feat in an otherwise bitterly divided Congress that has frequently suffered crippling dysfunction. The $78 billion tax package was sent to the Senate on a vote of 357 to 70, with strong support from both Republicans and Democrats. It awaits an uncertain future in the upper chamber of the Senate, however, with some Senate Republicans calling for hearings, and others are eager to make changes in the bill. Some Some House progressives voted against the package also, saying it wouldn't do enough to slash child poverty. They were joined by Republicans on the right who grumbled that it's an expansion of the welfare state in disguise. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys. You must be confused 
because every member of Congress is an expansion of the welfare state in disguise. You're actually robbing the American taxpayer to pay yourself. Anything that puts more of my hard-earned dollars back in my pocket that you can't have to spend on stupid shit that I don't agree with, the better that is for me and everyone else for that matter. That is your Friday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Please like, share, subscribe, do all the things. We're also going to have Liberty Happy Hour this evening at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time on Twitter Spaces. Don't forget to show up. I love you guys. You take care. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you on Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.